0: Hey, I'm Triana Butler, and welcome to a very special installment of Queer Thinking. Sydney Mardi Gras are celebrating their 45th anniversary in 2023, and over this four-part series, we're taking you on a journey through time as we tell the full story of one of the largest pride movements in the world. From the protest of 1978 to over one million event attendees at the first World Pride in the Southern Hemisphere and everything in between. We're unpacking all the moments that made Sydney Mardi Gras the force for pride, progress and community that it is today. The conversations you'll hear on this season of Queer Thinking were recorded and produced on the sacred lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, along with Gadigal, Kamaragal, Bidigal, Darug, and Darawa lands. We'd like to extend our acknowledgement to all lands on which you're tuning in from. Pay our respects to elders past and present, with a special acknowledgement to Rainbow Elders, part of the longest continuous culture in the world. Sovereignty has never been ceded, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And if you're Aboriginal, Original or Torres Strait Islander, please know that this podcast may mention the names of people who are no longer with us. In our previous episodes, you've heard about the 70s and the 80s, and in this episode, we move into the 90s and the noughties. It was a tumultuous time, from the AIDS epidemic to national exposure for the first time on broadcast TV for Mardi Gras, and of course, Mardi Gras going into administration and the birth of the new Mardi Gras. Joining us to take us through it, we have Sveta Gilliman, a local Sydney DJ and Mardi Gras favourite. She's played over 30 different Mardi Gras events. Sveta, Welcome. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: We've got Campion Descent, who was the festival director in 94 and 95. Hey, Campion. Thank you. And we have Jane Becker, who ran the Mardi Gras workshop throughout the 90s and has worked with some of the most well-known costume designers. Jane, welcome. Hello. It's great to have you all here. Now, let's head back to the early 90s. And I want to start with you, Campion. What do you remember of that time?
2: Well, I remember I first sort of became involved with Mardi Gras in 93, but before that I was editor of the Sydney Star Observer. So as you can imagine, the gay press was intensely interested in everything that Mardi Gras did. So basically I was reporting that from about 91 onwards. So I think it was really on my radar. And it was in fact when I was decided to leave the Star Observer that Uh, Susan Harbin, who was the then president, asked me to come onto the board specifically to look at
0: the festival. Jane, how about you?
3: I guess, yeah, so like Campion, I started at Mardi Gras as a workshop artist in 93, but before that I had some, uh, like I'd gone to Mardi Gras parades, I'd gone to, I was in Dykes on Bikes in 88, 89, and so my first experiences of Mardi Gras were were apart from seeing it on the street, were in the workshop at Rushcutters Bay, uh, which is where it was in in those days. And um, me and some friends made a float in '92, '93. Uh, I became started working in the workshop. I mean, it was an incredible time. I mean, there was the AIDS crisis, but there was also you know so much political activity. There was so much fabulous you know festival stuff happening, shows, entertainment. So I mean, it really was. I mean, I was in my early 30s by then, so it was an amazing time to be to be queer in Sydney.
0: We are going to have to ask you about the workshops a little later on, Sveta. You were heading out to parties around about that time.
1: Yeah, I was, um, but I was also had a weekly Friday morning breakfast show, so my connection to Mardi Gras. Happened quite early. It was a very different time. We had far fewer protective laws. The HIV epidemic was out of control. The Sydney Star Observer was basically one giant obituary. When I was finishing high school, so when I went to university, I I was studying communications, television, and radio video production. And one of the first topics I covered once I got my own show was about the local politicians claiming that they got sent AIDS infected you know syringes to the office, like all this disinformation. So uh, I did start covering those sort of things. And then I started covering the Mardi Gras festivals. So I got to I probably got to meet Jane during that time. Um, but I, I would uh, interview a lot of the visitors coming in from all over the world. Our dollar was very weak, but our scene was the most exciting in the world. And it really was the most mind-blowing time to discover the LGBTQI community.
0: Jane you're nodding along
3: there? <laughs> yep, total, totally in agreement with that. It was it was mind blowing is a good word.
2: And I, and I think the really interesting thing from my point of view because I'd straddled as I say the Star Observer and then Mardi Gras which is Sveta sort of said, you know, ran the risk the Star Observer of being one giant obituary. And Mardi Gras on the other hand was about release and celebration and, you know, solidarity and all those sort of buzzwords that we bandy around. But in that time, more than ever, it was absolutely vitally important. And there was a a great, I don't know if it was the same within the lesbian community, but in the gay male community, there was this great sort of sense of death is potentially on the doorstep. So what are we going to do? We're going to dance. We're going to celebrate. And Mardi Gras was a conduit for that.
1: Yeah and I think the lesbians also had a similar you know purpose around that time. It was to sort of gather around our gay brothers and help as much as we we could at at that time. I definitely felt a sense of purpose even though my identity wasn't fully formed at that time. I ended up coming out as queer, which is the identity I related most to, which was a very new reclaimed word at that time. But I think there was definitely a sense of purpose and celebration that was very poignant during those years.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And and for me, the 80s, me coming out as a lesbian, I'd been very much in a lesbian feminist community. I'd go to watch Mardi Gras and go, well, this is obviously just for the boys, and um, it really was the HIV AIDS crisis that made me sort of wake up. You know, Mardi Gras is not just for the boys. I need to get involved somehow here and contribute to this political cause because this is just like, it just was it was terrible reading the obituaries in the, in the Sydney Star Observer. So really, that was the thing that made me come into coalition politics, I
0: guess. So what did getting involved look like for you then, Jane, in the early 90s?
3: well i'm an artist that's my background i had been a a visual arts teacher in high school so for me getting involved meant helping people somehow visually so that meant going to the workshop and helping people build their floats and i really only stumbled on that when like i said in 92 we were i was with a group of friends we were building a float and the workshop it was the most incredible place that i had ever been It was like working together to make these incredible statements of um, political celebration. Uh, it just was incredible. And I thought, again, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to work.
0: We mentioned in earlier episodes, um, and particularly in the 70s and the 80s, you know, there wasn't really a community per se to feel part of. There were certainly other people who were out, but it didn't necessarily have that sense of community. And so, I, I want to kind of ask the panel, whether there was that sense of community and coming together following the AIDS crisis, did it finally feel like there was a community there? Like, what was the feeling like?
2: Well, for me, uh, absolutely. It's, It's one of the things that I think Jane said earlier about, you know, this great time to be queer or however you wanted to identify. And I mean, the sense of community for me was palpable, but it may not be the same for everyone. I realized that, but I mean, I was just this kind of nervous little gay kid who just sort of had a, you know, some talent with words. So I gravitated rather than to the workshop, to the Sydney star observer. And, there I found a community and then that community expanded and included Mardi Gras and included the HIV AIDS community. And it was just an extraordinary time. And I don't know if it's the same now or not, because I'm, I'm too old now to know. But like, I think hopefully we all find the time and we go into and find what we need. But I understand what you're saying, because one of the very first things that uh, when I started at the Star Observer, was talking to older gay men who talked about the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, and, and there was an, a sense of, oh, you're taking it for granted. We fought these battles sort of thing. And and I totally respect that. And I realised it was different and there was more isolation. But certainly throughout the 90s, it, this sense of community did blossom for me anyway.
3: I absolutely agree with that, Campion. And um, like I came from quite a strong lesbian feminist community, but you know that had its own—I uh, don't know—isolations. Um, so being, uh, you know, in a in a community that kind of that I guess Mighty Gras brought together, or that people gravitated towards through Mardi Gras was um, yeah, much broader and and deeper, and quite quite amazing.
1: I think that back then people were a lot more involved in a big way with Mardi Gras into the whole system. I understand what you're saying, Campion. I I don't know if my experience is different uh, or not of other women in my generation just because of where I come from, but I I felt like I came into the scene at a time when a lot of the uh, the older people were still around, there was a lot of young 90s sort of energy coming in, and uh, I think in my generation we were really open to finding out as much and learning as much as we could.
0: You know, given that you are you were performing at the time to the dance floors of Sydney and you know that is an entire community in and of itself. So I'd love to hear maybe some of your reflections on what that felt like in that space there.
1: I came into professionally DJing sort of towards 95, but I was going out in in that era and one thing that's massively different then to what was even different 10, 15 years later is that there were millions of gay clubs. I'm exaggerating, of course, but if you went up uh, Oxford Street, every third bar was a, a full LGBTQI venue. I looked up at the older people as incredibly brave. Like I remember seeing both Jane and Campion around at the time, I thought anywhere else Older than me, who had been fighting in that space, was incredibly brave, and I really appreciated what what they did. I found that maybe a few generations after me, where things a lot of laws got passed, things got a lot cruisier, A lot of the young people had no respect or understanding whatsoever. But on the dance floors, uh, it was it was a lot. Of, there was a lot of freedom. There was no. This was before a lot of the restrictions came in you know you could basically have the time of your life everyone around you was doing you know the same thing everyone was help like helping each other out if they felt like they were in an unsafe situation there were there was a hive of underground venues playing like alternative interesting music there were You know, the mainstream parties, the Mardi Gras at that time was the biggest uh, party in the entire Southern Hemisphere and there was nothing comparable to it in the straight scene over here. A lot of the divide between the LGBTQI and the straight scenes faded away and um, there was a lot more acceptance going on on the ground level. I felt like it was a real time of unity on on the on the dance floors, and very inspiring, and definitely helped me um, decide to come out in my in my own identity. Because I came into Australia from um, I'm from the Ukraine, we were refugees from the Soviet Union. It was a very difficult situation for me to understand my own identity, but I definitely related to a lot of the struggles that that were uh, were going on just as a. You know, immigrant as a refugee and discrimination. It's not. It's not anything I wasn't used to, but it was a, a scary but actually incredibly exciting time to come out.
0: Let me. Uh, let me just touch on something that you said there, and I might ask Campion about this first. Um, you know, Sveta was saying that looking up to people who were older than her, um, uh, there was a real admiration there, and that you were really brave. I want to know how that feels for you, hearing that, Campion.
2: I want to say that for my first is I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> I, I, she
0: she made it older.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the thing I would, I think, the thing that really resonated for me with what Sveta was saying was it was another, it was another element of the community back then was that age was really irrelevant. So you had people shoulder to shoulder that were very young, very green, somewhere in the middle, and elders, you know, and it was just irrelevant. It was just, we were all shoulder to shoulder for the greater cause, if you like. And, and that was the thing that was so lovely. So that sort of cross-pollination of experiences and ideas sort of went on on a regular basis. Yeah. I just remember thinking like someone, you know, people say, how old is so-and-so? And And I'd go, oh, I have no idea, you know, because it just wasn't really that important. People were people.
0: Well, that might be where we touch on the very first time the parade was broadcast on national TV. That was the mid-90s. That would have been about the time you were getting involved with it. Jane, you know, you were there at the time creating things in the workshop for the parade. Uh, What was that like, that first year that it was on television? Because I understand it was not all happy sailing. So for
3: me, I, I think it probably wasn't so relevant. So for me in the workshop, it was, I mean, obviously it's relevant to have a broadcast and to see yourself and see all the you know, amazing floats and things that you've contributed to and what community groups can come up with. That's all really relevant. But for me, helping people bring their ideas to, into reality, uh, it probably wasn't at the forefront of my mind, maybe as much as it was for you, Campion.
2: Well, it was, I mean, the, the first broadcast is indicative of a broader issue that we need to talk about for the 90s. And that is that interest in Mardi Gras exploded around that time. So there was mainstream interest in Mardi Gras like there had never been before. So it wasn't just the ABC wanting to do the broadcast. There was also a first CD music compilation that came out in 1995. Uh, We had major partnerships with uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art, with the National Gallery of Australia, with the Art Gallery of New South Wales, with Belvoir Street Theatre, and the list goes on. And all of that was very difficult to juggle. There were tensions within that. So the community roots of the organisation on the one hand versus this potential to kind of attract uh, resources to the organisation and to get the message out to a far broader audience than had previously been achieved. But there were tensions in that all the time. I mean, I can give you one one just one example of that is when we were looking at the you know each year there's a poster done that that is the the image for that season and historically it had always been done by a local artist and jane might be able to talk in more depth about this but In in the second year of my festival, in in, in 1995, we had this offer to have the poster designed by Pierre Agile, the international French art duo, which we all went, oh, my God, this is amazing, for free. They would do it for free. And... um, we thought this is too good to be true, sort of thing, and we, so we went ahead and and pursued that, and it came to fruition. But of course, it was it didn't please everybody because there were a whole lot of local visual artists who went, "Hang on a minute, you're t- you're taking our opportunity and and giving it away to to someone who doesn't need it." So. You know, it was juggling those tensions through in in multiple, multiple ways throughout the '90s about about even attendance at the parties. There was a, a huge furor in the '90s about the attendance of straight people at the at the Mardi Gras parties. That was another issue that kept us around the board table to three and four in the morning. Um, you know, and and you've got this volunteer board of directors a very small paid workforce and, and modestly paid at, at Mardi Gras, with suddenly the whole world knocking on the door. <laughs> and, and and it was that struggle throughout the 90s, I reckon, is, is what defines the 90s for Mardi Gras.
1: I have to say that that struggle continued um, further down. It was just a bit more public, I think, in the 90s. Like, there's always tensions. I've worked behind the scenes at the Mardi Gras. I think what people need to remember out of all of this is that people see Mardi Gras as like one all-knowing organisation and they don't realise that it's actually staffed by tiny little, a few people in the office a year round and the rest are volunteers. So whatever happens in that year is largely, you know, the chemistry of what happened in all those negotiations so you know if you want to if you want to do things differently volunteer and that that's always been like a really big struggle of criticism in our community not real they're not realizing how largely volunteer organizations run and also what challenges they have in presenting the events which could vary in a different year like we have public liability now, and people don't understand that it's not the same as like the eighties or <laughs> the seventies. It's a challenge taking on that kind of organisation.
0: Jane, I, I might want to. I-, I might get your thoughts on uh, from an artist's perspective on on what Campion brought up just a moment ago. Uh,
3: yeah, I think all, like all of those things Campion said re- sort of reflected in a kind of a microcosm in the workshop. Like we had the the I think I remember in 93 there was an economic impact statement about how much tourist dollars Mardi Gras itself brought into New South Wales and that was the first or and, and Australia that was the first time that had been done so that that kind of lifted the profile of Mardi Gras hugely and in the workshop you could kind of feel it like that that mid 90s period covered the move from Rushcutters Bay to Erskineville where Mardi Gras was headquartered for a long time the space was bigger the interest from media from the outside world was much huger. The size of the workforce became bigger. So uh, so at Rush Cutters Bay there might have been five artists that were seasonal and one workshop manager, that was Ian McMillan at the time. And in previous years there'd been David McDermott, Peter Tully, Pip Playford, all those people were still there when I first came in and were huge influences on me. But it kind of the structure kind of changed with the the growth of Mardi Gras. Um, So by the time uh, I was workshop manager in, say, 97, it was much bigger. And there were, uh, you know, the the core staff. There was still only one full-time staff, but it, it turned into 13 artists working at the peak Mardi Gras time. And there were over 100 volunteers when it was really, really busy. So it just became this huge thing with massive interest. And as Campion said, all those other things to balance, like the membership, straights can't come to the party, all of that kind of stuff.
0: Well, with that increase in visibility comes an increase in criticism. Um, I know the first time the parade was broadcast on national television, there were more than a thousand written complaints. Ninety different federal MPs signed a petition to try to cancel or reschedule the telecast. Um, Campion, I might come to you first. I know you were festival director in the mid-90s. What do you remember of the criticism that came in during that time? To be honest, nothing specifically
2: because we we were sort of, it was a bit like water off a duck's back. I mean, we expected, you could almost predict where the criticisms would come from. And it was just, that's part of the, you know, that's part of that kind of evolution that you see with every major victory that the, that the LGBTIQ plus communities have, have achieved is it starts with, you know, 100 critics, then it goes to 30 critics, then it, then it sort of tips over to, you know, a couple of supporters and then it becomes, you know, entrenched as kind of hunky-dory. So, you know, the fact that we would get criticism would only spur us on in that regard. We would take very seriously criticism that was around the representation of the parade in a media format. And of course, the first the first one was going to be, put it out there, see what it is, get better at it. The, my memory is, and I could it's a bit hazy, but my memory is, you know, now it's sort of live to air, but it wasn't back then. It was, it, the first one was uh, edited and, and I think shown a week later, and so, you know, th- there's been a whole lot of evolution of those processes. But, you know, I don't think we should be too tough on ourselves about that. It was, it was a learning curve for the organisation, a learning curve for the media and for everyone else. Um, but I think now you look at it and would think that it was, you know, now it's sort of relatively firmly entrenched. Um, some of those things that first started, you know, 20 years ago and were a bit bumpy to get going.
0: In 1999, uh, on Mardi Gras Fair Day in Victoria Park, was the, uh, the debut of an AIDS memorial quilt, which obviously was an incredibly significant moment. Um, Campion, I was wondering if you have any knowledge or recollection of, of that day and that moment.
2: Look, I don't I mean I have a great memory of the quilt because the quilt project, which started you know the Sydney quilt project was in the same office block as as the um, as the uh, Sydney star observer and um, and you know you'd go down and see them all folded in their particular way on their on their shelves and, and watch them grow. And every so often there would be an unveiling and it's always very powerful when there's a full unveiling. Um, and I don't remember which one it was. I remember going to one in Darling Harbour. Um, it was an extremely powerful community arts project. One of the greatest examples in, in the world, in my opinion. But yeah, I think that as a, as a kind of, as an artistic response, by um, not just artists, but by just regular everyday people to commemorate their loved ones. There, it was a very, very um, beautiful symbol back then.
1: I do want to say that um, the artists that we had in the LGBTQ community at that, at that time were some of the greatest artists I've ever, you know, whose work I've ever experienced, full stop. And I'm a big fan of the arts. So it was a really special time. We had a lot of talent here in Sydney. Like, and it, I guess one of the greatest tragedies of that period was losing a lot of them to the AIDS crisis.
0: Well, we have one of those artists here with us, Jane. Um, <laughs> Jane, I'd love to hear from you, uh, like an artist's perspective on these quilts.
3: Oh, the quilts were incredible. And really, I mean, I mean, they weren't one artist's work, they were, they were the work of members of the community many of whom were not artists so they were just a really pure expression of love for the people they'd lost a remembrance and one of my uh, probably most enduring memories of the quilt apart from those things that Campion's already mentioned like you know going to these various different um celebrations and showings of the quilt and ceremonies was how we then reproduced that for the Gay Games in 2002, like it became a very important segment in the opening ceremony was reproducing some of these quilt moments. So we made them up on huge canvases because, of course, we had to scale up for the size of the football stadium. But I, I, it really was one of the most Emotionally charged and significant parts of the opening ceremony—the unlaying of the quilt, yeah, just a you know a, a symbolic reverence to what what the quilt um, project had meant through the nineties.
0: I can see you getting quite emotional there. Tell me yeah, a little there, bit yeah. more about the Gay Games and and about that moment.
3: Well, the Gay Games was amazing, um, but it kind of I guess coincided with. I mean, I, I left Mardi Gras. At the beginning of 2002 so we did the parade and then it was like okay i'm moving over to the gay games now which was in november of that year and that year was also the year that then mardi gras collapsed and went into administration so i sort of you know experienced that collapse of mardi gras but then in the same year this amazing celebration of well, it wasn't just sport the uh, Gay Games. It was just, it was, it was another step in the community celebration, expression, protest, just the, and, and a lot of the people who worked on that were coming from the Gay Games, uh, coming from Mardi Gras. And it was huge. It was the hugest thing that we'd seen in Sydney. Like, like Sveta's right, 1998 was a huge party, but the Gay Games, because it brought so many more international community members, sports people, the, the, the it was just, it was huge. It was crazy.
0: Well, I'm going to ask Campion about this from a very journalistic Star Observer perspective in just a moment. But Sveta, um, do you remember any of the Gay Games and, and what the community was like either around that time in 2002, especially as Mardi Gras went into administration in that year?
1: Yeah. Well, I was just having all these memories flush flash in when Jane was uh, talking because, like, on the other side of even what Campion said with Pierre Gilles is um, what it was like as a punter or or uh, an artist during that time working on on these events. I remember when Pierre Gilles very briefly came to us, like did that whole thing. It really brought a lot of even more international attention, and we got we got a chance to go into the VIP room and enter the bathroom right after one of them peed on the on the front of the toilet. So we kind of all made all these like real world connections to people we only ever heard about or saw about on TV and who influenced us. Like Pierre and Jill were two of my favourite artists at that time and with the Gay Games um, Jimmy Somerville came into town and I played in the Dome for the final, the closing party and he uh, he danced to me all night and I remember that was a real moment for me as an artist because when I first came to Australia it was 1980, that song came out, I think a small town boy came out the late 80s and I'd never really heard about homosexuality at that time but I remember watching that video clip and like having tears in my eyes and I didn't understand really why I related to it but you know from an artist perspective we were getting to not only perform for but work with and as I've had the privilege via Mardi Gras to do many times over the years people who who contributed to our journey as LGBTQI people so on my end I was you know there were so many exciting things happening as an artist it was a great time it was just very hard because when when Mardi Gras went into dis- you know um was going through all of its issues so you know there was just as there is now a lot of bitchiness in the community bitching about oh if you only did this if you only did that and I always sort of understood you know things as you know you make an effort you put the effort in and you know hopefully good things will come so yeah it was a interesting time I just tried to read as much as I could to understand the issues involved so that when I talked to people on the street I was able to have an informed opinion or informed conversation
2: yeah I mean, the thing that, not being a sporting person, and this might come as a surprise and a shock to you all, No, but, <laughs> but, but the thing about the gay games that I recall was there was also a cultural program attached. And um, and so there were myriad ways of interacting with and becoming involved with the gay game, a little bit like World Pride, you know, just recently gone. And I think that's what's wonderful about those uber, uber events, is that you you don't have to do everything, but you can just find your way of interacting, um, even if you're a complete physical klutz. And, and I think that's my segue into saying I want us to give a shout-out to – the cultural workers of the 90s. Um, You know, there was some amazing work going on in in that decade and then obviously beyond and before, I know that, but we are sort of talking about the 90s and the noughties. And you had everything from the tiny to the the huge. So you had, for example, the first... um, collaboration that happened with the performance space in Sydney, which was a sort of institution then, was this thing called Club Bent. And Club Bent started, I think it was in the 95 festival and then continued on. And it was basically... Performance, dance, drag, music, comedy, underground meets contemporary, curated by people like Ang Harrod, Wyn Jones, and Jonathan Parsons and Christopher Ryan and other people. And it was just—I remember when I was talking to Ang Harrod about it, saying, "Who's going to come to this thing? there's no one's booking tickets." And we turned up on opening night, and the place was. Packed and overflowing. So you had that. But then you also had, um, you know, people like Penny Arcade coming out from from, uh, New York and doing shows as part of the Outrageous Comedy Festival that uh, Barbara Bridges and Robin Kershaw put on at Belvoir Street. And then you had, you know, I'll never forget the night we were outside the Museum of Contemporary Art. And it was 1994, and it was has it happened to be International Year of the Family, and so we all went. Oh, we are family, of course. And so we we had Judy Canelli perform, and then it was one of those perfect late summer Sydney nights, and suddenly Paul Capsus comes out on stage and sings "Summertime," and it was just like chills down the spine. And then at the end, of course, we had to go with the big We Are Family anthem. And we brought out all these different manifestations of family, different genders, different identities, different ages. There was not a a dry eye on the lawn that night.
0: Well, it did become the new Mardi Gras in 2003 after the collapse. Um, Jane, I might ask you first, um, your recollection of that time.
3: It was a very difficult time. So, leading up to 2002 and the collapse of Mardi Gras, there'd been uh, 9/11 had just happened, and for Mardi Gras that meant no tourists were coming; they were too scared. Um, the whole insurance environment changed completely, which meant a whole lot of uh, different financial burdens on Mardi Gras. At the same time. It had sort of started happening before, but then it became much more rapid. The WHS, Workplace Health Safety Compliance uh, environment, became very, very different, partly because of that. Um, But the main impact was the tourist dollars coming into Mardi Gras. So the parties just weren't making the money because the tourists weren't coming. There was a lot of internal difficulties at Mardi Gras at that time, and I remember processes going on that, you know, I mean, you could tell from inside that organisation, you could tell that things were not good. Should also remember that
1: our dollar went up around that time as well, like became really strong. So it no longer became um, a cheap trip for the Americans. And that really impacted travel. And then everyone else started putting on massive festivals and big parties, so straight people had thousands of festivals to go to, so there wasn't that. There was a whole bunch of factors that came in at the same time.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah like the whole music uh, festival thing hadn't been a thing for most of the 90s, but partly because of those big Mardi Gras parties that were so successful, then that impacted on those. Um, but it was. It, it also was not, it was not fun to be there at that time. So for me personally, moving on to the Gay Games uh, was a really positive thing. It was like, okay, um, you know, trying to make a contribution uh, still to this community and, you know, working in a way that I like and enjoy and with amazing people um, on an amazing event. Um, but it was a very, very difficult time and, yeah, a lot of conflict around that time to do with Mardi Gras.
0: Campion, what do you remember of the the new Mardi Gras and this kind of Resurrection, this phoenix rising from the ashes in 2003.
2: I was just very sad to see it happening, you know, and I, but I wasn't involved in the internal kind of machinations or politics of it. But I, just echoing what Jane says, because I've been there at other times where other organizations have wobbled and uh, it's very stressful for the people involved, very stressful. Um, so, look, I was really glad that they managed to. To bring it together. And my, my impressions, and they could be very misinformed, was that it took a while to get going. It was sort of a pretty humble outfit from when it sort of got going. But then you kind of, you know, you look at what's just happened in the last couple of years and you think,
0: wow. We might move a little bit forward into 2004 before we bring this home. Uh, because I know 2004 was when then Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard, Uh, outlawed what we now know to be marriage equality. Uh, He said that actually, no, you you can't get married. Um, And Jane, I'd love to hear from you first, your memories of that moment and what that felt like for yourself and and among community.
3: Where do I even begin with my detestation of John Howard and his politics? I mean, personally devastating, politically devastating, a very difficult time. In terms of community, uh, I wasn't working at Mardi Gras then anymore. After the Gay Games, I had gone, okay, I fucking need a little bit of time out. So I was not so engaged with any of those community groups that I'd been very connected with through my many years in the workshop. Um, But you don't need to be connected with a community group to know what a, a horrible time that was for, you know, the LGBTQI community. Just awful.
1: I, I want to also add that three years before that, he talked about refugees throwing children overboard. So, for someone like myself, who's a refugee, my hatred of John Howard has been long-standing.
3: Yeah, I also come from a family of re- Jewish refugees. It's like you know, it, it's just it's appalling the kind of exploiting vulnerable communities for for politics.
2: There was no, there's nothing surprising in in the John Howard playbook. Um, the same way there's been nothing surprising in subsequent playbooks, particularly by someone like Scott Morrison. But you know what? We did it anyway. We got there. It was a circuitous route, but we got there. And I remember Rodney Croom, one of our great queer heroes, he said, you know, we have to go out, we've got to look people in the eye, and we've got to explain that we don't want to be second-class citizens. And we've got to change hearts and minds one at a time. And we changed at least two thirds of the country's hearts and minds to pass that plebiscite, as painful as it was. So, you know, it's just a constant reminder when you come up against a brick wall, just start chipping away at it a brick at a time and you will get there. And we've proven that as a community, you know, we've proven that again and again.
3: But it's also fun when you build a uh, an effigy of Pauline Hanson for the parade and send her up and then you blow it up uh, on an election night, the eve of an election night uh, at ball
0: <laughs> Wait, this happened? Okay, I've got to hear this story. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Look, I might have my dates a bit wrong, but it was the I'm sure it was the mid-90s as an election. So Pauline Hanson, we made an effigy of Pauline Hanson for the parade with um because of course she worked in a fish and chip shop. And so she had marching with her a whole lot of chips, like people with chips on their heads, hot chips. And um, yeah, Corby Beard was the, the brains behind the, um, the, the idea for the float. We built it in the workshop. I got luckily to paint her, her face. It was, it was, you know, had to endure that, but it was kind of fun too. And um, and then the, the sleaze ball that same year, We had her on stage at the party and blew her up. It was a lot of fun.
0: Well, on that note, let's end this chat as we head towards the 2010s. I want to hear from each of you, maybe just one really happy, positive, joyous, uplifting memory from that time that's really stuck with you. And Sveta, I might come to you first here, because I feel like as someone who has performed to some pretty huge crowds and who's been very, very tightly involved in the community, you know, you would have a whole lot of those memories.
1: I do have a whole lot of them, so I'll probably, just to keep it tight, I'll tell you the one that I, I had that was one of the first crazy, meaningful ones to me. One, one artist I was completely obsessed with as a, as a kid was Boy George, Culture Club, from the age of 12. Um, and Mardi Gras put me on to open for him. I think it was like twenty. It might have been 2011 um and that was just a real moment for me like that was my whole life as as a creative artist (laughs) coming back yeah it was just mind-blowing and I, I have to thank Mardi Gras Mardi Gras always sort of saw the potential in me and have given me loads of opportunities to perform with people who I've only admired my you know many times in my life and um, have given me such an incredible platform to jump off from. So, Boy George, I think 2011,
3: what about you guys? Well, for me, that's too hard. One memory, just impossible, and I can't do it, I'm sorry. Like, you know, I think about meeting Angus Straffy when we worked on the 1997 lead float and he'd, he'd done all the, the, the float design, the costume designs, working with him. It, it just, KD Lang at the Gay Gang, it just is, it's too, it's too much. It's too much. It's just all an amazing journey.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, like like Jane and Sveta, multiple memories, obviously. But there's there's one thing I remember because it was I was actually brought I was reminded of it uh, at the um, at the um, World Pride reception at the town hall by someone who was on the board with me. Jane Marsden said to me, "Do you remember that time?" And I went, "Oh my God, you're right!" And it was the time Kylie Minogue first played the party, and there'd been rumours about Kylie playing the party for ever in a day. And this year was the year it was true and it was very hush-hush. And the board, for some ridiculous reason, had this idea that we would all, board members, form a security cordon at the front of the stage. Um, And... And whip out our board passes because, you know, we were told that people would be so ecstatic that they would rush the stage. And here we are, this group of dumpy, ageing, 12 people linking hands and Kylie comes up through the floor and the whole place erupts. And no one rushed the stage, of course, but they were, the delirium was amazing. And I've just, I'll never forget that three and a half minutes of energy of standing right there and just this love not for me for bloody Kylie but the love by default hitting us it was extraordinary
1: i'm surprised you didn't get crushed and killed well the funny thing
2: the funny thing was feta it got worse by the minute because Kylie was so excited she didn't leave the backstage area and do what she was meant to do and so we had to all link arms and stop people from going to the toilets can you imagine <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> Thousands of people had to waited in the hall for Kylie for hours and were busting. <laughs> and here we were. So it eventually cleared. But it was it, it almost uh, it was like it became a little bit scary. But, it, it, but you know, you, we live to tell the tale. But I just laugh to think that we would actually be a, an effective security force in that situation if something had gone wrong.
0: Well, with that, it brings us very neatly to the end of the 90s and noughties. So, Jane, Campion and Sveta, thanks so much for joining us today and walking us through the 90s and the noughties of Mardi Gras. Thank you. Thank you. It's a
1: pleasure to be here. Our pleasure. <laughs> My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Queer Thinking, presented by the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras in collaboration with Joy, Australia's rainbow community media organisation. If the content of this episode has raised any issues or concerns for you, support is available. For a list of support services, head to mardigraorgau forward slash support. That's mardi.gra.org. Dot .au forward slash support. For more episodes of the Queer Thinking Podcast and to check out upcoming queer thinking events, visit au forward slash podcast.